All the latest business news from WA. Mark my words, your weekly news briefing with Mark Pownell and Mark Beyer. Welcome to our weekly podcast. I'm Jordan Murray, standing in for Mark Beyer for what seems to be the third week in a row, joined by Mark Pownell. Thank you, Jordan. Coming up on today's podcast, Burrup Challenges, Rio's Tax Deal, Luxury Brands, Serona Urban, Gold Mining and WA Fund Management. But first, data this week shows a surge in Perth's house values over the past three months. Yeah, Jordan, uh, it's been a, a big three months for house prices, but it is a three-month window uh, and it really represents the opening of the West Australian border. So I think we saw a bit of a surge and I don't think it's reflective necessarily of exactly the market right now. So it's one of those funny ones where I think it was up 2.2% for that period. As we, as we talked about last week, uh, we're already seeing home approvals, for instance, declining rapidly. So, you know, whilst those two things are not always uh, exactly aligned, I suspect this might be a bit of a lagging indicator compared to, you know, what's what's in the future. But at the moment, house prices are still pretty robust. But it'd be interesting to see where that house price growth is, because I imagine it's probably not in the place where new builds are taking place. No, that's right. Yeah, that's that's quite right. We're talking about the median house price here. Uh, and and of course, Perth's house value still is the lowest in the country for the capitals, which is pretty astounding. I mean, it's even below Hobart. And, and you know, so we've sort of had this odd weakness in the house price here compared to the rest of the country, but they're all coming off rapidly, whereas where ours has still kind of maintained some sort of steadiness, albeit having had that boost from when the uh, when the border opened after March. And it's funny because I remember Mark Meyer had spoken to Damien Collins of Rewa uh, about a year ago, in fact, because he'd asked him, well, why are house prices in Perth not increasing and why is this a consistent pattern? I think his explanation was that supply is actually sufficient in Perth, which seems to fly in the face of a lot of commentary we hear that supply is really poor, particularly from the state government and the Department of Planning, that we need to increase housing supply. It's hard to read this market and mm. I, I guess potentially there was a lot of supply coming on because there was a big burst of stimulated building which, you know, maybe people were anticipating more supply than there really was. I'm not quite sure. Also, I think we didn't have the surge in migrants coming here. We didn't have international, and we're still only getting a bit of it right now. Uh, and even interstate, people weren't coming here. To, so I think there was, uh, there was sort of like a, a less demand and less supply in a sense. So those two things netted off, I suspect. The great vacation, as Matt McKenzie likes to call it. And just a few things, right? So almost 20% of Perth's suburbs now recording a median house price of more than a million dollars in June. So that was quite, that's kind of, you know, it's not quite 20% yet, but it's still quite a lot. Uh, And of course, you see that mainly in the western suburbs and a bit in those uh, south of the river suburbs as well so uh, Up across south perth yeah yeah a bit of that i think bicton was the only one that uh saw property f- values come off uh during during this period what a nice place to live uh, <laughs> wouldn't be complaining if i had a house in bicton anyways mark a couple of major projects on the burrup face regulatory challenges around conservation and heritage tell me a bit about that the big news this week was around perdeman's 4.3 billion dollar urea plant so Tanya Plibersek is the new Federal Environment Minister and she has sought and got a 30-day stay on development there because she wants to look at the threat to Aboriginal rock art in the area. Now that is obviously something that's been a huge issue for a very long time but it's it's grown and grown and grown. Um, Now 
Um, but this is a new development for Perdamon, which has actually got its project approved. So that was the big that was the big first bit of news. And I don't know if you've ever been out to the borough, but it's no. the rock out there is you know there is some amazing stuff. And and where the Northwest Shelf Gas Plant was first done, they did move a lot of rock art, um, a lot of rocks with rock art on them uh, to you know, to make way for that. So I'm not quite sure with the Perdamon project how much needs to be moved or whether there is also... So there's the movement of art or movement of the rocks that contain the art and then there's also the the emissions from plants that put out, you know, sort of something that might be considered a little bit acidic or whatever that could, you know... So that's the arguments that go on up there. Separately to that, um, Woodside then has also had a sh- is sort of like got a looming showdown with environmentalists because they've put in, when I say they, the uh, there's been an appeal to the EPA's uh, recommendation to improve approve the uh, Caratha LNG plant. So this is the Northwest Shelf plant operating through to 2070. So they basically Woodside got approval to extend the life. I think it was another 20 years beyond 2050. So that they could obviously, you know, keep it's billions of dollars in investment, and they want certainty in terms of how long they can operate it for. But there's been an appeal to that through the EPA, and they've had 600 submissions from various people and groups, including, for instance, Conservation Council of Western Australia. And one of the things that they are asking for or demanding is that this plant or the the extension of this plant's lifespan that scope three emissions be taken into account. And that means they want the EPA to consider every the use of that gas. So once it gets exported to Japan or China, who's going to use it and for what? And then in what are the emissions that are going to take place there? Now that is, from my understanding, never really been sought before, although increasingly new gas developments, there has been this sort of push towards demanding scope three recognition to get to get a new ga- a new gas field development up that's just starting to happen and now this is actually talking about a, an existing gas plant and it's the duration of its life which seems like quite a tactical and sensible move because as i understand it when the conservation council had taken to court the scarborough uh, project trying to seek it be shut down there was obviously no possibility that was going to be shut down it was unlikely a court was going to intervene especially when the state government had already shown its hand and said that it would not allow that to happen. So it seems quite tactical that they're moving to scope three emissions, which I know Andrew Forrest is one example of someone in the business community who has encouraged the federal government at least to measure scope three emissions. I, get, I think it is, it's a very interesting tactic. It's also, I think, where the problem lies is that it's it's such a difficult thing to measure. I mean, mm. you know, I, I, for instance, Woodside doesn't necessarily uh, sell or the, or, or the operator doesn't necessarily sell and know exactly where the gas is going to get used in every instance. Is it, is it in a power station? Is it being used for other purposes? So, you know, you can't necessarily know into the future exactly how something's going to get used and you don't know what your customers are going to do to manage their use and change their use over that time. So it's a, it's a lot of guesswork and I guess it's a bit presumptive, I think, that that other countries aren't going to do anything about it or trying to understand what other countries are doing. I, I guess I've always thought this gets away from the main point of what's the gas being is the is producing gas and shipping it to Japan better than not shipping gas and them getting it from somewhere else or them getting or using coal as an alternative. Now, I know that's an argument that not everyone will buy anymore, but that's kind of what the argument has been to date. 
we're now shifting away from that and just going, well, what is this gas going to be used for? And I, I just think it's a huge challenge to actually work that out. But it's certainly one that I anticipate would have broad support in the community, this increasing of the compliance burden if it's in aid of ensuring that gas is used in projects that won't further uh, the emissions problem that we're already confronting. So I guess that gets back to the point of yeah. whether it's furthering it or where... And, and I guess that what I'm unsure about is does, does Scope 3 actually account for, well, if that energy generator in Japan used an alternative, would it be worse? That's the question that I'm not sure that scope three does that. It just says, oh, these will be, this is what we're guessing will be the usage. And we're guessing that through to 2070, which is, well, incredible. If you and I can imagine thinking about energy usage and gas usage in 50 years time, that'll be a huge, uh, I just don't know how you do that. Mm, but then one would assume that if they're seeking gas, they're seeking it for a specific purpose and they're not going to go back to, say, coal uh, if they need to use coal. Sure, but we don't know how efficient they're going to be mm. burning it. Or we don't, you're right, they may not be using it, a lot of it for power. It might be producing something else or it may be used in a different step in the power process. We could talk ourselves in circles on this, Mark, but I'm going to turn to Rio Tinto now, uh, which has agreed to hand over $613 million to end several long-running disputes with the ATO. This is a big story for a bunch of reasons. Um, f first of all, it's simply about the uh, Australian government through the tax office taking on a major business in a, in a way that, I guess... I think it dramatically changes the way a lot of big businesses uh, in this kind of resources sector operate, right? And it's not exclusive to the resources sector, but it's more obvious, I think. And so what's happened is Rio was has had a long, a long stoush with the tax office over about a billion dollars worth of tax that the tax office claimed they were owed due to what they call a marketing hub that Rio had in Singapore. So effectively what they would do what Rio was doing, this is my interpretation of it, was Rio was selling ore to itself in Singapore and then on selling it to customers and obviously the cost of the goods to its Singapore hub was at a lower price and then it took a took a and then it sold it for a premium, you know, an additional margin and it paid less tax. So in effect, it was a, there was a smaller profit margin on the sale in Singapore and then a bigger profit margin coming out of Singapore where Singapore charges less tax. Now, they're not the only ones to be doing this. And, you know, I, I do, I, I, I kind of back business in many, many ways, but I don't, I don't really back the, I don't support this mm. because this is, you know, it's called it's transfer rot. pricing and it's, it's just wrong. And, uh, you know, and it happens in the software business big time as well. Mm. Um, and the advertising on, uh, you know, all sorts of large platforms, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on where profits are changed and altered due to costs that are falsely inflated in high tax environments. And Australia has considered that. So Rio has settled this claim. They've settled it for less than the tax office demanded. You know, this is the art of the deal. It's still, they've still paid out or will pay out nearly a billion dollars. Plus, my understanding is they've also conceded that over over a five-year period, they will pay certain amounts. So, you know, the tax office has locked in a sort of outcome for five years. I don't know why just five years. And I think it, it sounds like it signals possibly the end of this practice. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I guess I'm wondering, and I, I, I don't know if, it's, if it'll happen, whether that makes Singapore less of a marketing hub it's in terms of for Australian resources. And it's not just 
uh, iron ore. It's also oil and gas and things like that. So I'm just I'm uncertain as to whether that changes and whether marketing, for instance, could come back to Perth or wherever or whether it remains there or whether it goes more to the home country where it's being marketed. Not clear about that, but it's certainly, it's certainly a big win for the Australian government. Having said that, it's a billion dollars over 10 years and Rio paid $80 billion in taxes over 10 years. So it's actually a tiny, tiny proportion mm. of the taxes that Rio paid. In that context, it seems like nothing. But obviously, when you say a billion dollars, it pays for a lot of things in this country. Indeed, it does pay down a lot of services. And I anticipate, because prior to the election, the, the new treasurer had said that these sorts of rorts were exactly the sorts of thing he was going to direct the ATO to crack down on, not institute new taxes, but chase existing revenue that should be owed to the taxpayer. So I wonder if we will see more cases like this in the next three years, uh, particularly when we need more revenue. I suspect you won't see more cases because... This will, will be a precedent. This will be a precedent that you know that they won't need to take it to court mm. and and spend a long time in litigation. Anyway, we'll see. And I, and forgive me, but I don't know the record in the past. I don't know whether the tax office has managed to knock any of these off beforehand. I can't recall any, but it, it may have already got precedent setting, and I'm not quite sure. Uh, you and I both, so we won't comment any further on it. Mark, turning to Karanup Shopping Centre, it's looking to add some more luxury retailers amid a battle for global fashion brands here in Perth. Pretty fascinating. So Karanup's got some big plans. Uh, they want to do some expansion. Um, they're looking at putting more apartments around it. It's, it's really quite a major centre uh, already and it's looking to up its game. Um, and they revealed during the week at an event uh, one of our reporters attended that they had got expressions of interest from a couple of major retailers in Louis Vuitton and Gucci. Now, you know, look, I'm not a fashion expert, but they're pretty big brands that we all know. And these, are, you know, they're kind of like those headline brands that everyone wants to have. It kind of puts you in a certain place. They've already got some really big ones out there already, uh, Sephora, Coach and Kelvin Klein. But they're looking to kind of have a, a precinct within the Up Shopping Centre where they can have even more of that. And I guess what we're seeing there is a suburban centre trying to attract high-end retailers that have previously been seen only in the CBD and to an extent Claremont, which is sort of heart of the western suburbs. And also at the same time, and Business News has reported a fair bit on this recently, there's been a, a change within the CBD as well. So that battle is also going on in the CBD where King Street has been actually kind of usurped to a degree by Murray Street and that sort of part of Murray Street down near Rain Square where uh, a whole bunch of high-end uh, retailers like Chanel have moved out of King Street to this, I mean, they've obviously attracted by rents, but, they're, but it's sort of like a, they do like to gather together. They like to be together, and if one shifts, there's always this possibility that more will shift. So uh, I think we've seen, um, again, Louis Vuitton, Tiffany, uh, Kalis, which is, you know, it's a West Australian brand, but it's right there with them. They've moved to, uh, to the Rain, to Rain Square during the pandemic. So, you know, maybe there was a, some rental lures there. And also now recently Gucci is looking to move out of King Street. It's been there, like it's one of the last ones there. So really big change in the city. And, you know, from people like me who've watched that King Street go from really being 
a bit of a rundown street that was the centre of the rag trade, but sort of at a wholesale level, become this really upmarket fashion district. And if you really go far back, it was sort of like the home of the first really upmarket coffee, uh, King Street Cafe. That's where, you know, when I sort of was early in my career, that's where you kind of went for a cool, you know, coffee and, and all that sort of thing. A really big change there, which I guess the owners of the, uh, the space in King Street will have to come up with alternatives to uh, maintain their presence. I too am old enough to remember the gentrification process and particularly uh, with suburban shopping centres attracting those high-end retailers. From memory, I think Burragoon was probably the first that uh, attempted to attract those big uh, high-end retailers. I say big high-end retailers, but particularly European outlets like Zara uh, and even things like the Apple Store, which to that point I think had only had that store in the CBD. They were the first to... Uh, attract a store like that. So you've, I've seen it over the past 10 years, and Karen Up's obviously the other example. Arena Joondalup, I think, has done a pretty okay job of it. They're not places that I'd shop at necessarily, but I think one of the most interesting dynamics we're seeing now is those suburban shopping centres try and bring that city experience out of the CBD. At the same time as Perth City Council and the CBD has struggled with, well, how do we get people to live in and around the city while at the same time still retaining a lot of those high-end brands that you might not see outside of Perth City. Yeah, and I think that's the... I mean, I find that the most interesting part, that whilst there is this competition, like you say, from regional centres and the CBD, and that, I mean, it's very real, as we know, because the CBD has a lot less workers in it than it did two and a half years ago. And, you know, and we're all wondering, is it all going to come back? But what I do find interesting is that these luxury brands haven't exited the CBD. They've just moved somewhere else where I guess I assume they've done on a cost basis. It's more cost effective to go there. But but those sort of brands aren't going to operate on cost alone. They must have figured there's other reasons. And I suspect there's, you know, since the opening of Yagan Square, um, there's more foot traffic that goes through Rains Square and, and that part of the city. Um, and, you know, they still want, you know, they're still retailers. They want to be in front of the foot traffic going past. Mm, indeed. On a similar note, uh, major apartment development in South Perth, pioneered by Serona Urban. What's going on there? Yeah, look, just a brief one here. I uh, did note this, uh, their, their project, Serona Urban's project in South Perth called 28 Lyle, $165 million, I think it was 33-level apartment. They've been at this for seven years and they've pulled the pin on it, which is extraordinary, given all the discussion around, you know, shortages of accommodation, shortage of housing, blah, blah, blah. And also the fact that, you know, when you speak to uh, apartment developers, the view is that Perth has a long way, has, is under-resourced or under-represented per capita and there's a lot of growth to come. But uh, they've cited uh, construction costs, labour and materials, delays. They can't get their project off the ground in a cost-effective manner. And I think more importantly, they've obviously sold a fair bit of this to, to buyers and they're clearly not going to recoup their money on those and may, may make a loss and you can't go and build a building if you know you're going to make a loss. So they're going to refund the buyers. So I think that's a, that's a really, look, I, you know, I won't, uh, it's just a big one in, in, in terms of uh, what's going on. I mean, South Perth is a major development area. We're seeing still quite a number of projects there that are ongoing. So the fact that one's pulled by a company that, is pretty recognised in this space, uh, I thought was quite significant. 
Mm, well, I think particularly there you were talking about housing supply. It is astonishing that potential housing supply is coming offline, but I think being able to do it in a cost-effective manner is key there, and it's possible. I, I haven't read the numbers, but I assume that the cost outlay for it just simply was not effective enough to build these uh, build these apartments in a cost-effective manner and an affordable manner. So, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, I do like South Perth very much, and I think the foreshore there is very beautiful, and particularly what they've done around having the apartments graduate uh, past uh, Perth Zoo. I think it's fantastic what they do there. Uh, this probably could have had the capacity to open up more density in that area. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that doesn't look like it's going to happen. So, Moving on to what's in our magazine, which is out on Monday. There are a couple of major features, and to begin, we're going to talk about gold miners and as it happens Waluna Mining has appointed administrators this week after months of growing pressure. Yeah look a big feature here with uh, Simone Grogan and Mark Byer having done that um, but in fact uh, yeah Waluna Mining put into administration during the week as you said. Now they had sought to raise 84 million dollars I think it was in May to expand they're, they're basically a one precinct miner so They've got three kind of projects, but all within the one kind of area, uh, close to Waluna, obviously. And they and they had a plan. It was going to be expanding their open pit and their underground mining. Uh, they've got a bit of underground mining at the moment. They were going to really try to triple their output in a pretty short period. So their, their output had come off to around about, I think it's about 40,000 ounces a year, uh, they were much bigger than that in, in a few previous years. I think they've done nearly 300,000 ounces over a few years. So 40,000 quite a, a drop-off. So they wanted to ramp that back up again. They didn't get as much of the money as they wanted. They'd kind of given themselves a minimum from reading it around about 50 million. And I understand they got more than that. But they've clearly got the same pressures. We just talked about the apartment issue here. There's obviously pressures around getting materials and labour out into, if you can't get them in Perth, getting them out to remote WA and presumably, and we we don't know the detail here yet because the administrators have just been appointed, but presumably they they had to, you know, revise their plans and perhaps the money they raised wasn't enough to get it over the line. And you've been in this business a bit longer than I have, Mark, but traditionally when we enter economic downturns or at least a period of slower growth, gold tends to do okay, and you'd expect that by association gold miners would do okay. Look... It's a nuanced question, I know, and it's not easy to just say, well, yes, that's the case, because I imagine it's not always the case. Yeah, and I mean, it also depends how much is coming on board, but you're right, uh, there's uh, other factors and forces in this, and of course I didn't even mention, and again, a lot of this is in, in the feature, but I mean, the gold price has come off really quite a lot in the last three months. So at the peak of the gold price, at the, at the start of the Ukraine war, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, gold spiked up to about uh, nearly 2000 or 2050 roughly US dollars an ounce. Overnight, it's down to 1700. So that's, you know, that's a big fall, you know, talking about quite 15% there, but not far off it. And so you've got the Aussie dollar, you know, it's fallen, but it's coming back up again. So I think that there, maybe there's a lot of doubt around this. I'm not sure. But generally speaking, in times of difficult times like war, you would expect gold to go up, and it did. Maybe the markets have relaxed a bit, and that's coming off. And in difficult times and inflationary times, gold is a store of wealth. You generally expect it to do okay, but perhaps uh, I'll need to get 
I'll need to get an economist in here to, to discuss some of that. And look, in the feature in general, first of all, uh, Simone's done a really good piece around some of the, the detail. You know, when you compare what Waluna Mining has got in, in train, then she's also looking at a bunch of other mid-tier, smaller, you know, prospective miners. You know, you've got DeGray. They've got a huge project in the Pilbara, which, you know, they're very confident of, which would be much bigger than anything Waluna had planned. And Mark Byer's done a fabulous piece with a, I really love a good graphic, and he's done a, a timeline graphic showing those sort of top 10 gold miners and that how that's changed over the last 10 or so years. We've collected the data for about 10 years. Um, and, you know, so it, it used to be um, Barrett Gold was the top, and then it became uh, Newmont. And Newmont held the top for quite some time. They used to do... Uh, nearly one and a half million uh, ounces a year and they've come right back down half that and then a couple of years ago northern star jumped in as the number one when it purchased saracen mm. and they got control of the super pit at the same time and so basically northern stars now at over one thousand uh, over 1.3 million ounces um, so they're clearly number one with lots of expansion plans. So it really, uh, th there's not a lot of sectors where the number one player changes hands quite so often. And some of those just, you know, barracks sort of obviously just disappeared out of that. They're, they're, they're much smaller. And may I'm not even sure, I'm not even sure what they do by comparison these days, whether they operate. And as I mentioned, uh, Newmont right down at half its production. So, you know, it... it the gold game's so different than the iron ore game, where iron ore you you set up for production over decades, and you you know they've got very consistent growth, and then it comes off a bit, and they replace with another mine. Gold is very different. But having said this, Northern Star Resources, it's become something of a joke the last few years because since that Saracen acquisition and particularly the mining of the super pit, they seem to be locked in the top there. In fact, because I'm not too sure how we rank the gold list it's per uh, ounce mined isn't it that we rank the, yeah. the list so yeah. my my understanding is that it, it will take something momentous to knock northern star off the top in the near future it will take some sort of major acquisition in fact i would i would think yeah well look i didn't even mention goldfield sorry they were in they they briefly held the mantle for about a year yeah. but you know they sit at about a million ounces so i guess they could make an acquisition and mm. you know and, and 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 again so that comes back to more that they've got a buy something or find something uh and and but it is production so if you find something it still takes some years to bring it into you know online mm, indeed and mark we'd be remiss if we did not speak about your feature in the latest edition this one's about wealth advisors so i got a kick out of reading this one but for our listeners can you give them a bit of an overview of what you wrote about yeah a lot of fun with this um fund management in this town is a really different world than you know so i mean in in reality I guess Sydney is the, 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 the financial services capital and then Melbourne kind of sits behind it. And so you, when you talk about funds management, you're talking about super funds and uh, big industry funds uh, and those kind of things, bank money, blah, blah, blah. And that's all centred around um, Sydney and Melbourne. And then you've got, uh, you know, some boutiques. And I can't, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of boutique funds out there that would have billions under management. Um, and they're often in, you know, they're in all sorts of special things and they, you know, try and outperform the market. So locally, we have a very, very, uh, very thin grouping compared to that. 
and and over time, it's in some areas it's got less and less, and that's kind of what I was looking at um, when we started measuring funds management in this town. There were around about ten um, industry super funds based in WA. Um, there are now two, so that's a remarkable change, really, since two thousand and eleven. Uh, I got a great interview with uh, Frank Cerrone, uh, who is on the board of GESBY, which is the Government Employees Superannuation Board, um, and that's the biggest fund manager in the state, with about thirty-seven billion under management, um, and locked into. You know, if you work for the state government, you, you your super generally goes there. Um, and then he is also on the board, he's about to exit the board of the Fire and Emergency Services Super, which is a much smaller fund, around $900 million. And, and, and also the second super. <laughs> yeah, well, the second <laughs> super fund, yeah. I mean, the difference is remarkable, right? And really, the truth is, uh, FESB, as it actually they call it, but FES Super, whatever we're going to call it, um, is, um, well, I can't call it an anachronism, but it's definitely a dinosaur in the sense that and the reason it hasn't disappeared is because it's so unique. There's sort of no appetite for any East Coast fund to kind of take it over because it's uh, it's a defined benefit scheme. There's not many of them left in the country, uh, which means that the payout when people retire is based on their salary, not the amount of funds that they've taken out of their salary over time, and then in, and then and it's not on the investment of that. Now it is on the investment of that because money's put aside. But it isn't, if you know what I mean. It determines um, the value of the yeah. pot as a whole, as opposed to what you get back. Correct, and and this uh, and the fund, uh, you know, it, it's it's in part of it is because they're f- effectively firemen. There's all these insurance elements to it. There's all they've got different work, different versions of how they pay it out and everything like that. So it actually has immense benefits for people who are in a very risky business of being firemen, and in a sense, that just doesn't fit with a whole bunch of other super funds. So it sits there sort of doing its own thing. Um, and I might make one little interesting point that it also, as it happens, invests in quite a bit of local stuff as a result, which is very unusual. Even for the previous industry funds, very few of them would have actually invested much in WA. But um, FES Super, because it can have such a long timeline on it, a long-term view, uh, it can actually, you know, so it's in, in retirement villages and things like that. Very interesting. So we've had this big decline in the management of sort of what I'd call, well, they're super funds. You've got two other sectors. You've got this sort of public funds where people can put money in. You and I, if we wanted to, can go and put money in. Although typically in this town, the public funds are for sophisticated investors only. So generally speaking, you've got to basically prove that you, you know, earn $200,000 a year or are worth two million dollars or where there's a bunch of benchmarks that allow you to call be called a sophisticated investor investor um and those funds are you know typically but not always in resources there's lots of them in resources and they're really different and they're 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 a fascinating bunch um and and they they have grown but there's not a substantial amount of difference in that group over the last 10 years there's a few new names but not much and then there's this emerging group which we'll call family offices, and it is the wealth of the super rich in this town, uh, where they bring it into, they instead of investing their money with outside groups, they bring it in house, 
Now, I think the most obvious example of that, the most pure example of that is Tatarang. Um, and it's even, even in a sense of calling it pure is a bit wrong because Tatarang, which is the forest family, family office, um, they, they, I'm not sure they actually manage the, tr- the biggest source of the forest family wealth, which is shares in Fortescue Metals Group. You know, effectively, they're actually managing the, the dividends that are flowing from that. But technically speaking, I, it's an asset that would sit somewhere in that Tatarang grouping and family office. And, I mean, Tatarang's employed a lot of people, including investment managers. Another example is Hancock Prospecting, Gina Reinhardt. Again, its biggest single uh, stake or biggest single asset is the Roy Hill Mining Project. So um, 70% of that. So in a sense, both of those, because they're, uh, well, Forrest Family's first generation, Gina Reinhardt's second generation, they still haven't quite cut the ties from the original wealth funding asset. But nevertheless, professional management... Um, and I think when you add up the numbers there, those kind of offices now are bigger. And I'm working on the the idea of the total wealth of the individuals or the families involved. Those are now bigger than the super fund management area. Um, so, and and just to tie all this together, one of the interesting um, elements of the what are called the public funds was their shift the shift to Cottesloe as their centre. Now that's was something we noted in this magazine, in, in well, we published about ten years ago, but it's it's actually increased substantially, even quite recently. And there's a number of very big fund managers there, including now Spitfire Family Office, which is a fam new family office established by uh, Lawrence Escalante, who's made money out of virtual gaming worlds. He's worth about three billion. Uh, it's spinning off enormous dividends, and he's established a family office in Cottesloe, actually technically in Peppermint Grove, but across the road from Cottesloe, right near where all these other fund managers are. And not only that, they're kind of linked to a new fund manager called 51 Capital, which is also in Cottesloe, which is uh, doing a whole lot of stuff. Like So people can invest funds through 51 and of course, his office invested in a financial services business that we spoke about last week. Yeah, we money. Yeah. Uh, that's right. So you know, there's all this synergy, and and I think that's that's where I get a little bit excited by this because the more that funds are managed in WA, the more likely that it will be invested in WA things and WA ideas, uh, and also you get that uh, you, it's a draw card for people with those skill sets. So you get that that level of people. So you kind of need a critical mass. And I think the family office is, or the various family offices, and there are a lot more than that, I've just mentioned a few, are starting to kind of compensate for that lack of uh, the, in, the, inf- the industry funds that have disappeared. Well, Mark, your interest in it is absolutely astonishing and uh, your excitement is to be appreciated. So I thank you so much for talking about that one. Thanks, Jordan. Before we go, do you subscribe to Business News? Using MyBN, subscribers can follow organisations, people, lists and projects and receive notifications when there is an update or anything you follow. You can save articles to read later and follow news by sector, creating a news feed focused on your interests. MyBN is the only platform of its kind within WA. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening. The latest business news delivered daily. 
Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.